In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we talk about the importance of doubt with Nathan Ward. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Dr. Kenny Embry. We'll talk about how to be better Christians and people in the digital age. Let's go. I believe. Help my unbelief. If you're familiar with the story of Jesus, you'll recognize these five words, which come from Mark 9. The story is about someone at the end of his rope who comes to Jesus and finds himself in a crisis of faith. This is a passage I think about a lot because I am this guy. I know I should have more faith, but I just don't. I know I need to be better, but I'm just not. For someone who's been dead for 2,000 years, this man coined a line I could repeat every day. If you've been following the podcast at all, we've explored this idea of being authentic with one another a lot. My buddy Keith Stonehart calls this church face. Nikki and Julie say we should be real, be true, be you. I've talked with Emerson, Hal, Mark, and several others about the importance of both finding the right answer, but also the accurate one, and how those are often not the same thing. So when Nathan Ward came to my congregation and talked about the importance of doubt, I knew he got it. Nathan is a fellow professor who works at Florida College, a small Christian school in suburban Tampa. Nathan is also an author and publisher and has written some excellent books, as well as being an evangelist in the area. But more than that, he is someone who does a nice job of saying out loud what a lot of people are thinking. And that's why I wanted to talk to him about doubt. Notice why he says that doubt has some real advantages. And also at the very end, he talks about the problem of having faith in faith. It was something I had never considered, but have been thinking about a lot since we talked. Let's go right into it. What should be the Christian's response to doubt? Well, first of all, I think we do need to talk about it. That's a big part of this. One of the reasons I like to talk about it is because of what you said, which is a lot of people don't. And it's one of those things I didn't realize how much we needed to talk about it until I started teaching on it. Um, I, I work at Florida College, and one of the classes I teach annually is the freshman evidences class. And honestly, the doubt class that I put in that was kind of a thrown in at the last second the first time I taught it. Uh, I need some something to fill some space, so I'll, I'll talk about this some. And I had no idea how it would resonate with the students. And year in and year out, it has resonated with the students. And so I've started taking it to congregations as I've had opportunity, and it resonates with with people in congregations as well. And it's specifically because no one talks about it. Yeah, um, It's something that people are ashamed of. Uh, they think that it's so contrary to their faith that if they have some kind of doubt, they must be some sort of closeted atheist or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. To, to kind of bring it out in the open and say, no, this is something that everybody deals with at some level, at least at some point in their life, if not as an ongoing part of their life. Fundamentally, the way we should deal with it is to talk about it, to bring it out in the open and address it. Isn't doubt a problem for Christians, though? No, doubt's a reality for Christians. Yeah. There's no way around it. When you live a life of faith, which is to say that you don't have all of the answers to everything— it's impossible that you don't at some point have some kind of doubt. An important part of understanding that is to understand that there are different kinds of doubt. Yeah. Not every doubt is equal. 
different authors have done a good job of talking about those kinds of things in different ways. I will say that there's intellectual doubt driven by questions you have intellectually or logically or or that sort of thing. And then there's also emotional doubt or psychological doubt where something has happened in your life that has raised questions in a new sort of way, and you're driven more by your emotion than by your reason. People are doubters because they're distracted by the cares of the world. People are doubters because they're wounded by someone else. Not all doubt is equal, but when you live a life of faith without answers to every question you have, doubt is just something you're going to face at some point in your life in some way. Unpack that for me, because I think one of the things that you're doing that's really interesting to me, (laughs) we're two academics, one of the things that we love is to define our terms. So you started talking about different types of doubt. What what is doubt in the first place? Well, that's a really important thing, of course, is to define terms, uh, make sure we're all talking about the same thing. So when, when I'm talking about doubt, what I'm talking about are questions that are raised In the religious realm, questions that are raised about God, questions that are raised about faith, uh, questions that are raised about religion or Christianity or whatever else due to uncertainties or turmoil. So intellectual uncertainties, emotional turmoil, past scars, those sorts of things is, is what I'm talking about when I talk about doubt. Now, to kind of unpack it a little bit more than that. In terms of types of doubt, I kind of ran through a generic list a second ago. There are some people that, for them, doubting is almost genetic. It's almost as if they're hardwired to doubt. There are some people that faith comes easy for them. There are some people that faith is incredibly difficult for them. People that just have a lot of angst, people that are more melancholy, uh, they, they struggle in ways that other people don't. You know, one of my favorite conversion stories I've ever heard is the exact opposite of this. It's a, a friend of mine whose brother was converted when he decided one day that he wanted to start reading the Bible. He wanted to investigate what this Bible thing was all about. So he picked up the Bible and started in the New Testament, and he read Matthew, and he was really impressed by Jesus. And he read Mark, and he was even more impressed by Jesus. And about halfway through Luke, he decided he wanted to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. And it's the most remarkable story you've ever heard, because faith doesn't come that easy for most people. Well, right. what I'm talking about in terms of genetic doubters, if you want to call them that, is the exact opposite of end of the spectrum. People that doubt is like that for them, the way faith was for this man. They just, every question that there is, they're drawn like a moth to a flame to that question. So that's kind of one kind of doubter. There are people who doubt as a manifestation of rebellion, Uh, rebellious doubters where doubt isn't the issue so much as they're looking for a reason to raise questions. And so they find questions, whether they're there or not, but they find them and latch onto them because they want to rebel. Uh, Disappointed doubters and wounded doubters are are similar to each other. Uh, I would distinguish them as to whether they are disappointed in in God in some way. Uh, God has not answered their questions. God says, seek and ask, and I've sought and I've asked and I haven't found, and it it doesn't seem like he's answered. That feeling leads to doubt. Wounded doubters are people who are hurt by other people, particularly people who are hurt by so-called Christians. The number of souls that are in turmoil because of, if you understand my terminology here, high-ranking, so to speak, religious person has hurt them in some way, and it leads them to, yeah. to doubt everything religious. I mean, if a preacher can do this, if an elder can do this, what does that say about faith? In that same vein, people whose parents go to church and they act all holy and they sing all the songs, they write things in talks and in Bible class, and then they get home and you can tell their faith is a sham or they're abusive or whatever else. Uh, the odds of those children 
coming to faith, well, they have to do it in spite of their parents, not because of their parents. Yeah. Because all they've seen about religion is is hypocrisy. And so people are, are doubters because they've been wounded. Intellectual doubters is another kind. We've, that's kind of what I was talking about a minute ago. They want to intellectually undergird their faith, and they realize that they can't answer every question that they have. And that leads them to say, you know, well, maybe there aren't answers. There are people that maybe they're not intellectual, but they want intellectual answers. And they look around and say, look at all these smart people out there who aren't believers. Maybe faith is for the dim-witted. And if that's the case, maybe I don't want to have anything to do with it. You know, obviously that's not the reality. You can find high IQ people, both who are believers and unbelievers and agnostics and multiplicity of other religions. IQ is not the factor here, but there are people that might think that looking in from the outside. And then, um, you know, distracted doubters, people whose faith is choked out by the cares of the world. It's one thing when you're at a place like a Florida college where you're surrounded by positive peer pressure. You have daily Bible classes, you go to chapel, but it's, it's a different thing when you're a young parent with your third child, you're working 60 hours a week to make ends meet, you have a wife who's sick, a boss is riding your back, and you go to church and you're, you know, middle of nowhere and the, the congregation you're with, you know, not to, to disrespect this kind of group because they are what they are and they're doing as well as they can. But when you're a young family and you go to a congregation and there's like 13 people there total and the average age is 74 and a half, you're probably, I mean, unless you're really looking to, to find encouragement and to find encouragement by being an encouragement, that can be a discouraging situation. And so just all of that piling on at once can lead to questions and to doubt. And then finally, I think the worst kind of, of doubt is the comparative doubter. The person who says, well, I go to church and I hear all these claims that I'm not experiencing and I believe and I study the Bible and I pray and I work hard for the Lord and I don't have this sense of joy that everyone else seems to have and I don't seem to get my prayers answered and I don't have a great sense of peace and I don't feel like I'm in the hands of a God who's guiding me down the road and is going to take care of me. Why are their lives so perfect and mine so flawed? Maybe it's because God isn't there or God isn't listening to me or I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing and again, that can spiral into different kinds of doubt. One of the things that I heard a long time ago is that people rarely leave bad jobs. They often leave bad bosses. And I think, I, I don't know many people who leave Jesus. They leave a congregation that they don't particularly care for. Uh, they, they've made some some enemies or, or uh, they just have a bad taste. In that, and they're dealing with a bunch of hypocrites or something like that. Jesus was never really in the mix there. What, what happens is instead they're leaving a bad experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think we need to make sure that we're not churchians, we're Christians, um, that we're not devoted to the group, we're devoted to the Lord. And I tell you, one of the the dangers of leaving a group because of hypocrisy is that when you leave, now you're leaving the church in the hands of the hypocrites. I've heard that a couple of times before, but not often, that churchian versus a Christian. Did you want to unpack that just a little bit for me? Well, I mean, what what is it that you're following? and let me give you an example of it. Maybe that'll help unpack it. Why should we be evangelistic? Well, we should be evangelistic because Jesus said to be evangelistic, right? I mean, that's right. fundamentally why. But imagine a scenario, and this isn't too hard to imagine because this happens all over the place, where somebody says, you know, I'm concerned our church isn't being evangelistic enough. We should start an evangelism program. And so you come up with this evangelism program, 
and uh, now the church is pushing people to be evangelistic. And so people start being evangelistic because the church is pushing them to be evangelistic. They're doing it because the church said to and not because Jesus said to. Now, to be fair, we all need motivation, and that's that's fine. But the real problem here is that person that first raised the issue and said, I think we need to be more evangelistic. He's not done a thing, but he's able to, to go home and sleep better at night because now the church is doing this thing. And he's a part of the church that is doing this thing, whether or not he's doing it. And it's this complete devotion and focus on the group. And the group is great. I mean, the, the group is, is the body of Christ. But we should not be devoted to the group and obeying the group and following the group. That should all be focused on Jesus. And the whole group should be doing that. And so, you know, in the final analysis, it should be one and the same. But when it's not, the, the focus needs to be on the Lord, not on on the people who at least claim to be the Lord's body. I completely agree. Let me go ahead and and unravel something that I know you're not saying, because I think one of the things you're not saying is um, you shouldn't be hospitable, that, that, that you should make uh, a bunch of litmus tests. And, and if you are having to leave the group, you were never converted to a Christ to begin with. And, and what, what you're absolutely saying is, yeah, you need to be a part of a group. You need to have that, that positive, social pressure on you, but you shouldn't be converted to a group. You should be converted to Christ. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah, that, that's absolutely the case. And I and I would add to that that it's dangerous to think that you can worship God independent of a group. Yeah. And that's one of those, you know, things that you hear from time to time these days is I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Right. I lo- I want to be a Christian, but I, I don't want to be a part of a church. I, I love Jesus, but I hate religion, all of those kinds of things. And all of that's just a flawed understand of, understanding of what religion and the church is supposed to be. And if the church is what it's supposed to be, those issues don't come up at all. Uh, I was reading David Garland's commentary on Colossians several years ago, and he said something, and I don't remember exactly how he said it, but the way that it struck me and the way that I've said it ever since in response to people that say, I want to be Christian, but I don't want to be a part of, of the church, is that it's impossible to be connected to the head if you're not a part of the body. Ooh, I like that. I don't know about you. I, I have kept on looking for that perfect church, and I just never find it. Do you? <laughs> no, and as as soon as I find it, it won't be perfect anymore because I'll be there. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. If Jesus was critical of people who doubted. If we embrace this doubt that, that you're talking about, aren't, aren't we falling under the condemnation of Jesus? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I, and again, I think it comes down to what do we mean by doubt? And right. what do we, we mean by embracing it? Are we embracing it to the point that we face our questions head on, that we realize it's a part of our life, or that we let it run our lives? If we embrace it to the point that it, it, it is put in the driver's seat of our lives, then yeah, we've got a problem. Yeah. But what I always think of when I think of Jesus in doubt is the story in Mark chapter 9 of the father who comes to Jesus with his demon-possessed child. He says, please heal this child if you are able. Yeah. And Jesus says in response, if I'm able, what are you talking about, man? Everything is possible for the one who believes. And his response is, I do believe, help my unbelief. Yeah. And that story to me typifies the, the Christian life as it relates to this question, because that's where we all are. We believe, but we don't believe as well as we could. Mm-hmm. We believe, but we don't believe as well as we should. Right. We believe, but we don't believe as well as we will if we continue to grow as we ought. But yeah. Jesus' response to this man isn't, 
come on, man, what kind of double talk is that? Either you believe or you don't get your act together. <laughs> you know, he, he doesn't say, oh, ye of little faith, get this doubt out of your life, and then I can heal your child. His confession of I believe help my unbelief is a confession of faith. And yeah. I think it's a confession we need to embrace because, again, I think that's where we all are at some point. When Jesus was resurrected, and of course all of us know doubting Thomas, it doesn't seem to me that Jesus ever criticizes that Thomas is doubted. As a matter of fact, I think the only thing he did say was, you know, did you want to see? Look at this. Now believe. I don't know if you would go here or not, but I worry about people who don't have doubts at, at some point. If you don't have doubts, I don't know how deeply you're thinking. Yeah. I, I think there's a very healthy skepticism that you need to have about everything. That 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 little that little thing in in, in Thessalonians where, where Paul says, test all things. And that includes the good stuff. And yeah. and hold on to the good stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I'd I'd say either you're if you don't have any doubt at all, you're either not thinking hard enough or you're self deceived. Right. You've bought into something and you're you're not giving it critical thought. Right. Uh, let me let me go back to the to Thomas for a second. You know, we always talk about doubting Thomas, but he's not the only one who doubted. Right. The apostles all, when the women told him that Jesus was raised, they all said, right. you're crazy. What are you talking about? And for that mm-hmm. matter, the women themselves, when they got there and the tomb was empty, they didn't say, praise the Lord, everything Jesus has been talking about for the last three years has come true. Right. They said, where's the body at? Where did you move them? It's, it's not like any of them were expecting this to happen. Some of them came around a little bit more quickly, but they all came around when they saw Jesus, including Thomas. So they're all in the exact same boat as, as far as that goes. And and I think that's for what it's worth. And again, this is a sidetrack. I think this is pretty good reason why we can trust the New Testament record is because they don't make themselves look good. They make themselves look terrible. Yeah. Why would they tell the story the way they do? And it's constant. They always make themselves look bad. And this is just one more example. None of the apostles, none of the disciples, none of the early people to the resurrection expected this to happen. They all had to be convinced. The antidote to all of this is faith. <laughs> Should we just have more faith? Faith just makes all this doubt go away. I mean, isn't that right? Yeah, it's just this magic wand, and you can just wave it, and problems go away just like that. That's exactly um, right. Yeah, I say, show me a faithful man or woman in the Bible, and I'll show you someone who contended with God at some point or other. It reminds me of the name of Israel. The, the name of Israel literally means to contend with God. Yeah. That's what Jacob did. Yeah. And I mean, what he does in wrestling with God in some physical sense is what everybody does in an emotional, psychological, spiritual sense. We all wrestle with God. I mean, you look at the inspired hymn book or prayer book or whatever you want to call it in the Bible. You talk about the normal kind of categories of Psalms, and the largest category of Psalms is lament. There is no other kind of psalm that you have as many of as you have laments. People who go to God in their turmoil, people who go to God in their doubts, people who are screaming out to God, where are you? Why is this happening? That's what faith looks like, yeah. is people begging God for an answer and and not always getting it as far as that goes. We we make the mistake sometimes of of thinking that answers will solve our problems, and I don't know that they will. I think of Job and what Job endured, and I, I can only imagine what he might think if God explained it to him and said, well, you know, Job, me and Satan had this bet. I knew you'd do okay, but uh, I kind of had to prove it to him. Really? You, ha- you had to prove it to him? You're God. You knew exactly what was going to happen. What do you mean you had to prove it to him? 
how would an answer have made that better? And we sing, you know, farther along we'll know all about it, but I don't know that the Bible ever promises that we will. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and I will see my God. Mm-hmm. Paul says the current suffering isn't worth being compared, not to the answers that will be revealed, but to the glory that will be revealed. I think the the biblical picture is not that we'll have all of our questions answered, but that when we see God, we won't care about our questions anymore. Yeah. It reminds me of the... I was, I was talking to somebody the other day, and we were trying to conceptualize eternity. And I can't figure out if eternity is just an unlimited amount of time, or if eternity is no time at all. That, that the construct of time is just gone. Right. Uh, and I'll go ahead and tell you, I am so time-bound, I have no idea. I, and I can't really conceptualize a, a, a thing without time. Oh, yeah. I, I think it's beyond our ability to understand at this point. But I do think that... You can think back to, you know, your own life or your your children's lives where, you know, they'll be two or three years old and something that will happen to them that is so incredibly traumatic that they think their life has come crashing to an end. (laughs) And you know it's silly. And whether it's something from your past or you're just watching your children, you know it's silly. And you know that one day they'll think it's silly too. And not only will will you think it's silly or will they think it's silly, but there are those times that the only reason you even know about something from your past is because you've heard your parents tell the story so many times. So here's something that you once thought was so incredibly traumatic that now not only do you think it's silly, but you don't even remember it. And I, I can't help but wonder if what the Bible's trying to tell us is that in the presence of God, the worst things we ever experienced in this life will be like that silly thing that we can't even really remember anymore unless we're told about it. Yeah. And one more thing I say about this, you know, faith being the the antidote to doubt. When you realize how many different kinds of doubt there are and different reasons why people doubt that we were talking about a little while ago, I, I think it's impossible to think that there's going to be a one-size-fits-all solution to doubt. Uh, when When doubt is so multifaceted, we probably can't have one answer, and certainly not something as if I can say the superficial of an answer as, well, you just need more faith. Yeah, you're right. Keith Donhart, who's a buddy of mine, talks about having the Bible class answer. And, and we all know what the Bible class answer is because it's the right answer. It's the right answer that so few of us actually live, but we know that it sounds good in Bible class. I understand that. I, I do a pretty good job of the Bible class answer, but sometimes my life is just a wreck. And it's not because I didn't know how to get out of it. I just am not very good at doing it. You, you've already talked about faith a couple of times and that how faith just basically cleans up everything. I realize that's part facetious. Yeah. Um, how would you describe what faith is? I, I remember there was a definition that, that I heard as a, <laughs> a, a few years ago. It, it was a child who defined faith as knowing to be true what co- couldn't possibly be true. So how would you define what faith is? without using Hebrews 11. Well, that, that's another one of those words that it can mean different things in different contexts. Fundamentally, faith is trusting in God. And I think it's helpful to use the word trust because I think we understand that word very well. What does it mean to trust somebody? Yeah. And that's what faith is. Now, there are different kinds of faith. There's kind of intellectual acknowledgement faith, belief in something. But I don't know that it's this mystical religious word that's impossible to understand the way we sometimes make it hard to understand. I think we should move as far away as possible from popular worldly definitions of faith, where it's the opposite of reason. 
um, you know, miracle on 34th Street definition of faith, um, that that kind of thing. We just need to get away from that because I don't think that's what the Bible presents it as at all. The Bible constantly is pointing us in the direction of a rational religion. Uh, I think it's helpful to define faith, as we talk about doubt at least, I think it's, it's helpful to define faith in terms of what it's not. And two things in particular that faith is not. One is faith is not emotion. Now, emotion can be tied into faith for sure, but faith is not the same thing as emotion. Faith is not having a perpetual religious high. Uh, Emotion always wears off. Emotion is never perpetual. And if we think faith is having a good feeling about our religion, then when that wears off, we're going to think there's something wrong with our faith. And that's a that's a problematic place to be because emotions always wear off. That's why you understand love is something greater than just infatuation or school kid crush or something along those lines. Love is far deeper and greater than that. And the same thing is true with faith. You need to have that emotional element to it, but that waxes and wanes because that's what emotions do. Uh, there's a great story I came across in, in something I read. I'm not entirely sure what it's from because I don't cite my sources well enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the person said, you know, a, a guy told me one time that I don't love my wife anymore. And I said, go home and love her. And he said, no, you don't understand. I don't have feelings for her. And he said, well, I'm not asking how you felt. I said, go love her. Well, I think it would be emotionally dishonest to act that way if I don't feel that way. And so I said, does your mother love you? He says, well, of course she does. And so I said, about three weeks after she brought you home from the hospital and you woke up at 3 a.m. screaming with dirty diapers and she had to wake up dog tired and put her bare feet on the cold floor and clean your diapers and feed you. Do you think she got an emotional bang out of that? (laughs) And he said, well, no, of course not. And I said, well, I think your mother was being emotionally dishonest. And you, you see the upshot of it, right, is that it's not the emotion that shows whether the love is there. It's whether or not you're willing to do it even when the emotion isn't there. Right. And I think that transfers perfectly to faith. It's not always about having a positive emotional feeling about God or life. Again, look at the laments. The biggest category of psalms there are are people of faith screaming out to God in their anguish. That's what real faith is, is being able to talk to God that way. Because that's what it means to trust in God, is that you trust God will be okay with you being real with him. And let's be honest, it's stupid not to be real with God, because it's not like he doesn't know. I mean, we do this thing sometimes where we go through our lives, and we wake up and we think, man, life is just awful. Life is miserable. Things are terrible. My life is crashing down all around me. I've got troubles. I've got problems. I've got angst. Oh, it's time to pray. Dear God, thank you for being such a wonderful, amazing (laughs) God and giving us such great blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, I hate my life. It's terrible, everything. Do do we think God doesn't know what you've been thinking the rest of the day? You think you're going to pull the wool over his eyes? And I think it's a misguided attempt to be very reverent and very respectful, but in the end, you know, what would you call it if your kid walked around saying things to you that weren't an accurate representation of reality? I mean, we, we, we usually call that lying, right? Yeah. So, I mean, what we're doing is we're going to God and lying to him and yeah. assuming he doesn't know what we've been thinking the rest of the day. This, this is why the laments are in the Bible is they show us it's okay to be honest with God. It's okay to trust God enough to be honest with him. 
And I mean, there is a line that you can cross where you are irreverent and sacrilegious and blasphemous. That is a reality too, and we need to guard against that. But it is okay to have that kind of relationship with God. I mean, who are your best friends? The people that see you at your worst or the people that you put on some show for because you want them to to think you're something that you're not? I mean, it's obvious, right? Your best friends are the ones who've seen you at your absolute worst. So what does it say to our about our relationship with God if we won't let him see us that way? Yeah. So yeah, faith faith is not feelings and 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 along those lines really trusting in God is is being able to be real with him. Now the other thing faith isn't is the absence of doubt. I mean, I believe help my unbelief is all the evidence we need of that. But, I mean, you could look at Abraham, the father of the faithful, who clearly had doubts at various points along his his life. It's, it's impossible to know everything uh, in our, our finite, sinful state that we're in. Uh, there are things we, we can't know about, and, and we'll, we'll struggle with that. I love what Pascal says about this, the French philosopher. He says, reason's final step is to realize that there are an infinite number of things that lie beyond reason. It's simply feeble if it doesn't get as far as realizing that. But what that means is you don't have all the answers. And what that means is there's going to be at least some kind of doubt unless you define doubt in such a way that it it can't include that. But Nathan, don't you know that if we we give way to this doubt, these these atheists are going to climb all over us. They're going to eat us for lunch. They're going to make us look like idiots in the public square. Don't you realize that that if we if we express any kind of doubt, that that we are just going to be? I mean, we're going to be ridiculed, Nathan. Is it? Isn't that a big problem? No, <laughs> I don't think it is. Because again, the the alternative is being dishonest with ourselves and deceiving yeah. ourselves, and that's a far bigger problem. And if we if we don't express them, if we're not open with them, if what we do is every time we have a question, we sweep it under the rug, we're gonna what we're gonna wind up with is one day there's going to be a <laughs> overflowing rug with fifty thousand different questions. And what's going to happen is they're not gonna come creeping out one at a time, but they're all going to explode out at us at the same time. And that time is going to be when there's some major, major crisis that is its own problem, uh, the kind of crisis that would shake our faith all on its own, that's going to come along with every doubt and question we've ever swept under the rug. They're all going to come exploding back out at us again. You think the atheist ridiculing us is bad for our faith. <laughs> that moment is catastrophic for our faith. There's a lot of hubris in not being able to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to be able to say that the fact of the matter is the atheist there's a lot he doesn't know either. A good one will recognize what they don't know. Quite frankly, a good Christian will recognize what he doesn't know too. One thing that I, I'd say about doubt is that it's not unique to religion. Mm-mm. It's impossible for everyone to have an answer to every question that they run. They want to have an answer to. Right. But in every field, the most hard science fields that there are, there are assumptions built into what they do in order to have any knowledge at all. And some of them are, are more common sense and obvious, and some of them you just have to make an assumption to, to start. There are bridges of trust that we have to build in order to function from day to day and, and practical life. An example of this I, I give my students, and it's a, a silly example, um, but I, I ask them, you know, how many of you are rooming with someone now at college that you did not know before you met them? And that's always a pretty good number of uh, Hans, that's a pretty stupid thing to say, isn't it? You didn't know before you met them. You, you don't know anybody <laughs> before you meet them. Um, 
what I mean is before you meet them on, on campus, before you started rooming with them, you didn't know them. Um, and it's always a pretty good number of, of people that uh, that's the case for. And then I, I followed up with how many of you, you know, secretly harbored the suspicion that they're a mass serial killer. You don't. You don't presume that about people. And that is because you have built-in assumptions and trust. Until they reveal themselves to be something other than that, you presume that the, they are what they represent themselves as. Yeah. You presume that you can trust your senses, that what you are perceiving around you is an accurate representation of reality. Mm-hmm. There's so much faith built into life at every point. People start to doubt and question things. I remember back in the the, the late 90s and early 2000s, there were kind of a, a rash of movies that all – kind of built out of postmodernism really is what they built out of, but it was questioning objective reality. Um, you know, movies like the matrix mm-hmm. movies, like the sixth sense and, and other movies that you walked out of the theater thinking, wow, is what's happening around me? What's actually happening around me? Right. Or is there something, you know, crazy going on? And so whether it's a, a matrix kind of movie where, you know, we're part of this computer program or the sixth sense where you're really dead, but you don't realize it, or, you know, vanilla sky where you're plugged into some computer program of your life or whatever it was, there were a whole bunch of these and it made people realize just how much, I mean, whether they thought about it or not, it made them realize just how much faith they need in order to function from day to day. That can be shaken pretty easily. If a movie can do it, then, you know, <laughs> what does real philosophy do to it? Um, so, yeah, faith is not something that's limited to to religious questions. Faith is something that you need for life. There's a phrase that's been to making the rounds, and I know you've heard it. And I kind of have a love-hate relationship with it. It's it's my personal faith. What's your opinion of of you having a personal faith? That's a good question. I don't know that I've ever thought about that phrase in any kind of depth. I mean, obviously, everyone needs their own individual faith. You can't ride the coattails of of someone else's faith in order to to make it through this life. That's one of the things I do talk about because my evidences class is a class of freshmen almost exclusively. I, I talk to them about the fact that, you know, for most of them, they are getting to this point in their lives where they are wrestling with this question of faith on their own on a personal level for the first time. Some of them have done it a little bit before. Some of them still are refusing to do it. Uh, But a lot of them are at this spot where faith is becoming very real to them in a different kind of way than it ever has been before. You know, before they went to church because their parents made them go to church. And maybe they wanted to as well, or maybe it was just a habit. But now suddenly they have the freedom to go or not go. And they're they're facing questions in life that they've never faced and and uh, issues that they've never had to think about, and so they're going through the you know the, the philosophical turmoil of faith for the first time. And I, I think people need to get to that point where they embrace their own faith. They believe because they've thought about it and they believe. And so in the the sense that that's what we're talking about when we talk about my personal faith, um, I, I think it's incredibly important. Now, if we mean this postmodern thing where everyone has their own reality and everyone has their own truth, and my faith is fine for me and your faith is fine for you, and they don't have to line up with one another, and we're talking about you know religious pluralism and the blind men and the elephant and all of that stuff, then I would want to reject that idea that my personal mm-hmm. faith is good for me and your personal faith is good for you if they're not the same thing. I'm, I'm sorry, but there is objective reality regardless of what culture wants to tell us around that issue. And I mean, that's, that's a much bigger topic, but 
I tell you, that blind man in the elephant story, that drives me nuts every time I hear it used <laughs> as, as a reason uh, of why pluralism is okay or why objective truth isn't, isn't right. And I guess I've opened that door, so I need to talk about it a little bit. That, that's a story where you've got four blind men trying to describe an elephant. And one has its trunk and says the elephant's like a hose, and one has its leg and says the elephant's like a tree, and one has on its side and says the elephant's like a wall, and the other has its tail and says the elephant's like a rope. And the point of it is, I mean, depending on who's telling the story, it's something along the lines of, see, they're all right at the same time, um, and therefore there can be multiple things that are all right, even if they appear to be contradictory. Some will take right. that as so far as saying, you know, objective truth can't be known. And others will say this is like what religion is, where we're all grasping after a corner of God, and we all have a small piece, but we don't see the whole whole story. Well, yeah, the the story is is it's a great story for talking about why we can have different perspectives on the same truth, but it does not do what they want it to do in that postmodern angle for a variety of reasons. First of all, the whole postmodern thing is is rooted in the evil of arrogance and how dare you act like you know the truth and everyone else doesn't. And the story is told from the most arrogant perspective of all, which is only I know the truth, and the truth is that there's no truth. <laughs> the only person that is right is the storyteller, the one who's trying to convince you of his perspective. So it's, it's self-defeating at that level. Secondly, it relies on objective truth to disprove objective truth. You must have the objectivity of an elephant's leg and the objectivity of a tree trunk and the fact that they are objectively similar to one another in order for it to work. Yeah. If the story said the elephant's leg is a lot like a Buick, no one would buy it. It, it doesn't work anymore. You have to have the objectivity in order for the story to disprove objectivity, which again tells you it's fundamentally flawed. Third, they're not right. They're all wrong. I mean, you've never gone to Bush Gardens and been like, man, that's the most hose-looking elephant I've ever seen in my life. I've never <laughs> seen an elephant that looks so much like a hose. Every one of them is wrong. There is a sense in which this part of the elephant is somewhat similar to whatever it is that they're talking about, but the elephant is not like that at all. All of them are right. wrong in saying the elephant is like this thing. It has four propositions that are all wrong to prove a proposition that they're all right. And that's, I mean, deeply flawed as far as that goes. And then finally, uh, it, when used in the religious question, it has a massive presumption built into it. And that is that we're all blindly groping after God. Mm -hmm. If God has not left us blind, the entire issue is is flawed. If If what the Bible says is true, that God has revealed himself then we're not blindly groping after him. If it's true that we're all blind, then maybe there's something to it. We've all found a corner in describing different elements of him, but right. that's not clearly that's not the Christian perspective. It also doesn't mean that, that two well-meaning Christians that are worshiping together agree on everything, every bit of doctrine. Of course not. Romans 14 exists for a reason, right? Um, the, the, the possibility that, that Christians can disagree on something, and, uh, and, and in that context, you know, one's right and one's wrong. Yeah, We won't go down the Romans 14 road. I promise I won't go there. Um, <laughs> but it does acknowledge the possibility that they don't see eye to eye on things. Right. And there are some things that we can't see eye to eye on because, you know, we're reading the text and speculating about what isn't seen, and we need to be very cautious about doing that. Not because it's not a great intellectual exercise from time to time, but because we can create division where there's no need for division because right. we don't even know what we're talking about. Is there an advantage to doubt? Yeah, I think there is, because uh, going back to what we've said already, doubt forces you to be real. 
Doubt forces you to ask questions. Doubt forces you not to dodge issues. And in being real and asking questions and not dodging issues, doubt can strengthen your faith. You and I are both educators. One of the things that I would say we are probably both teaching, and it's it's the underlying of, of every good liberal arts education, in my opinion, is critical thinking. Built into good critical thinking is skepticism. And I think skepticism is one of those things that a lot of us are, are sorely lacking in. I think of all the skills that I wish my students had more grasp of is the ability to intellectually, honestly ask questions and try and figure out where it leads them without coming to the conclusion at the beginning. Oh, absolutely. And that's, I mean, that's the flaw of begging the question of presuming the answer at the outset, avoiding that, you know, philosophical error, logical blunder. And and the way you do that is through this, you know, skeptical uh, perspective. And that's not, you know, your hard, super negative skepticism. I know that's not what you're saying, but the refusal to be gullible. Yeah. And people, again, this, this notion that faith is uh, belief in spite of reason or, or built into that is the presumption that people of faith are, are gullible people. Yeah. And that is not at all what the Bible ever says. What kind of doubts do you have, Nathan? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I would say probably my primary doubts are less in, you know, evidential sorts of questions because I've spent so much of my time in that field that I, I feel like I've got a, a pretty good grasp on why I believe what I believe. Yeah. That's not to say I, I never have had those questions or never will. Things won't come up at some point in the future. My my questions, my doubts really are probably more rooted in my own goodness and God's grace. It's that question of, am I good enough? Am I doing what I need to be doing? And that's such a a hard balance to find because the answer is undoubtedly, no, I'm not good enough, and no, I'm not doing what I need to be doing. I need to rely on God and not on me. But at the same time, you don't want to push so far in that direction that you wind up in this very superficial, easy believism kind of, of doctrine where all you have to do is, you know, at some point in your life intellectually acknowledge God's existence and then you're taken care of for the rest of your life because mm-hmm. clearly the Bible never teaches that. Um, and so trusting in God, not trusting in yourself, but not going that direction to the point that you think you can just do whatever you want. And so for me, it's I guess my bigger doubt is knowing that I'm not good enough and believing that that's okay. I was talking to somebody the other day, and I think grace is the is the thing that I'm the most happily confused about. Yeah. Um, the more I probe and learn about it, the better off I am because of it. Look, I don't know about you, my life is a train wreck. And if it weren't for grace, I have absolutely no hope at all. That's right. I can't behave my way out of my problems. God is going to have to solve my problems for me. And the more that we think we can, the bigger problem we're in. The, the, a story that I came across several years ago was in a book by uh, Mark Buchanan is where I first saw it. And then I was taking a, a class, a graduate class somewhere, and I heard the teacher tell the same story. It was a slightly different version of it, and I asked him where he heard it, and he heard it from some other preacher who heard it from someone else. I, I'm sure there are a variety of versions of it. But it, it has to do with kind of, you know, frontier times on the, the prairies where there's like no hills around, where there's been a long drought, 
and there's nothing to stop the fire when a fire gets started. It's this dead grass that just ignites immediately and a big wind will get behind it and there's no hills or trees or anything to stop the wind and the fire will get moving at the speed that it is impossible to get away from it. I mean, you could get on your fastest horse and go as fast as you could and the fire would overtake you and burn you to a crisp. Or you could try to go sideways to get around it and it grows so fast on either side that you can't go around it. And so you think all these people must have died except they figured out a way to fix it. And what they would do is when they saw it coming, they'd take a log out of their campfire and drop it on the ground where they were standing and then follow it as it burnt out in the same direction that the fire was coming. And they would walk under the scorched ground. And when the fire from behind got to them, it would find nothing left to burn because the ground was already burnt there. And the fire would burn safely around them. And the, the point that was made is that this is what God's wrath is like. God's wrath will be poured out, and you cannot outrun it. You cannot get away from it. You cannot get around it. And if you try to, you will just be overwhelmed by it. But there is a place where the wrath of God has already been poured out in full force, and that is at the cross of Jesus. And so if your stand is at the cross of Jesus, there is nothing left to burn there. And again, but what it comes back to is you're not trusting yourself to get around God's wrath. You're trusting in Jesus to save you from God's wrath. The only one who could take the wrath of God was God himself. Yeah. Now, that's pretty profound, Nathan. That's a good way of thinking about that. When we start thinking about doubt, we often think about guilt, shame, embarrassment, is, is it a problem that those are the things that we often think about when we think about doubt? It's a problem in that that's what keeps us from wanting to talk about it. If, if we're ashamed of our doubts, then we're not going to, to get anywhere. And, and the way that I've said it before is that the, the shame isn't that we have doubt. The shame is that we're ashamed of our doubt and we won't talk about our doubts. Struggling with God is not a lack of faith. Struggling with God is the essence of faith. It's the life that we all live, as, as I've said already. And we need to to get past the shame and the guilt and the fear, and that, that's easier to say than to do. Yeah. But the way that we do that is by by making it okay to talk about it. And and this gets back to that comparative doubter, you know, the person who uh, looks around and sees everyone else and how great their religious life is, and um, why don't I have these things? Well, you know, there there are two problems with with that approach. One is, do you even know for sure that what they're showing you is who they actually are? You're, you may be comparing yourself to a false image, and their life is just as in shambles as yours is, but they just don't want you to see it. And we need to get past that in the, at a congregational level where we're pretending that we're something we're not. Mm-hmm. But then secondly, even if their life is good, as good as they as it looks, that's not necessarily a reasonable comparison for your life. I mean, I always think of the parable of the talents when I think about this idea, because Jesus doesn't give everyone the same number of talents. And talent not being skill, but something they're entrusted with, a, a unit of, a measurement of money is what it was. And when they were judged, they were judged based on what they did with what they had, not the the quantity of what they produced. I mean, you could think of a, a, a situation where, you know, say I'm a five-talent person and, and you're a two-talent person. It's my story, so that's how it gets to be. I'm, I'm the five-talent person. <laughs> okay. um, but, you know, at the end of the day, when the Lord comes back, I've produced three talents, and you've produced three talents. 
we've done the exact same thing in terms of what we've produced. Or maybe I've produced four and you've produced three. And I could say I've objectively done more than you have. But who's actually done more in that circumstance? I mean, I've done less with what I've been given than you have with what you've been given. And so, you know, in terms of fair judgment, um, yeah, I'm, I'm the one that's in the bad spot because I've and, – and that's why we can't judge ourselves against other people is only they know what they've been given. Only God knows what they've been given. Even if what you're seeing is who they really are, which is its own question at the first level, uh, even if that's the case, that doesn't mean necessarily that uh, it's a fair judgment to say I'm not as good as that person over there is. Maybe it's just because you've not been given enough to start with. Is there a more noble doubter? It seems like all of them have a little bit different solution to their problem of doubt. Is is there a different in quality of doubters? Maybe that's the way I, what I'm asking. There is a a noble kind of doubter, and it's the honest doubter, R- regardless of of what it is that led to the doubt. the The noble doubter is the one who admits that he doubts and and wants to address those questions and and address them honestly. And that, that's another part of it. It's, it's, you know, well, I'm going to address my questions, but I'm going to do it, you know, subconsciously or just quietly to yourself. You're not going to come out and say it, but I'm going to address them in such a way that doubt wins and I can reject this thing. Um, no, the, the honest doubter that is honestly seeking answers. This is one of the things that I say from time to time as well is you should, uh, you know, pursue your questions because the truth has nothing to fear. And so that's why there's no reason to be afraid of, of raising questions about what you believe, because either it's true and the truth will be shown to be true, or it's false and you shouldn't believe it in the first place. But if I believe this, this means that my grandparents were wrong, if I, or my mom and dad were wrong, or that I've been an idiot for my entire life. That if, if I come to, the, to a different conclusion, I am in some way indicting somebody else or some system of belief. And boy, now I feel really guilty about that, Nathan. Is that a problem? It's obviously a hurdle for some people. But truth is truth. Yeah. And we should embrace that more than embracing our emotions about some other person and what they believed or didn't believe. I mean, I don't know the easy way to say this to somebody, but either... Your grandparents are okay because God's grace covered that, or they're not okay because they're lost. But either way, what they would want for you is to embrace truth. The the rich man doesn't say to Lazarus, go back and tell my people about this and salve their conscience and and their guilt over the fact that they're getting the truth and I didn't. Uh He just says, Go save them so they don't have to endure this too. Understand, if your grandparents are saved, they want you to be saved. They want you to embrace the truth. And if your grandparents are lost, they desperately want you to embrace the truth. But either way, their eternal state has no bearing on the truth. Yeah. But again, I don't know the easy way to say that to somebody. That's not an easy conversation to have. There has to be a, a... depth of relationship in order to have that conversation. There are a lot of pithy sayings like, when you know better, you do better, uh, which I think is absolutely accurate in this situation. I just have to remind myself and remind them, God is fair, but God is also loving. 
God will do the most affair and the most loving thing he can. Mm-hmm. Well, Nathan, what am I missing? Is there anything that I'm missing in this conversation? You know, what one thing is, is faith on some level is a decision. Choose this day whom you will serve is the sort of thing you hear from several times in the Bible in a variety of ways. Choose life that you may live. Come to me. It is a decision. Uh, it's not just how does your emotion feel that day. And so on, on some level, you have to decide you want to be a believer. You have to decide to pursue truth. A second piece of this is to go where faith is. If you want to overcome doubt, surround yourself by people you respect for their lives and their mind and their character and their faith and learn from them. People who will be honest with you about their own doubts and not present a false reality of who they are. If you want to grow an award-winning rose garden, you don't do it in Siberia. If you <laughs> if you want to, to grow faith, don't go hang out on atheist message boards on the internet. I mean, surround yourself with, with faith. Uh, put faith-building materials in your mind. Fill your mind with scripture. Fill your mind with hymns. We're in a, a great place in history where, you know, if you don't get to hear your favorite preacher week in and week out because they live across the country, you could probably go to their church's website and download 50 of their sermons and listen to them while you're, you know, jogging or doing dishes or folding laundry or whatever it is that you're doing. Uh, I mean, you could constantly be filling, filling your mind with faith-building materials. Read, 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 read. There's so much good stuff out there. Clarify the object of your faith. Know, know what it is that you believe in, because having faith in faith is no good. That's what some people want is, you know, my my faith is weak, so I need to strengthen my faith. And my problem is my faith, and I don't have enough faith. And and it it is all becoming a question of, is your faith in your faith strong enough? You don't need to have faith in your faith. You need to have faith in your God. And quantity of faith really means little. It's the quality of faith and the reality of what you believe in or not. There are a lot of places where Winter ice skating on the frozen over pond happens. What matters? The amount of faith you have in the thickness of the ice or the thickness of the ice? (laughs) You can have all the faith in the world, and if it's not thick enough, it doesn't matter. You can have no faith in the world, and if it is thick enough, it doesn't matter what your faith is. It's the reality of the object itself. And that's what we need to do is figure out what our faith should be in and understand that as well as we can. Not asking the question of, is my faith strong enough? Well, it's not about your faith. It's about the object of your faith. And your faith gets stronger as you better understand what you believe in. And the last thing I'd say is the faith journey has to begin. We have to experience our faith. Reading books doesn't make you a person of faith. Hanging out with Christians doesn't make you a person of faith. I mean, even saying on some level, I think I want to be a person of faith, making that decision isn't going to make you a person of faith. We have to actually embark on the journey of faith. We have to do the things that faith does. It's not some mystical, ethereal feeling. We experience the truth of what Jesus said by doing what he said and having that validated by having done it. The the silly example I like to give on this is you know, how do you learn how to ride a bicycle? Well, you know, obviously you go to the library and check out your how to read ride a bicycle books and you read them all and take extensive notes and maybe draw some diagrams and then you know how to ride a bicycle. Well, no, of course not. So uh, you hop on YouTube and you watch them how to ride a bicycle videos. And now you can see it. Well, no, you, you ride, ride a bicycle by getting on the bicycle and riding it. And there's some help along the way and there are some 
falls and some skinned knees and some tears, but you learn how to ride a bicycle by getting on the bicycle and riding it. And the same thing is true with faith. You become a person of faith by doing the things that faith does and experiencing the truth of those teachings. And there are some falls and skint knees and tears along the way. But what do you do when you fall off the bicycle? You get back on it and start riding again. And as long as we do that, what this all boils down to is what the psalmist says in Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience faith, and that helps grow your faith. I have no doubts there are a lot of people who grew up in the church that they're in, and the reason that they became, quote-unquote, a Christian was because mom and dad did, and there's that social pressure to become what your parents are, and you've been going to church your whole life, and certainly because you've known everybody at church for so long, undoubtedly you have a faith of your own as well, because there's so many people there that do, so I'm guessing that you do as well. I think all of our parents who raised us by going to church were absolutely well-intentioned, but there comes a point where you kind of have to overcome your upbringing. If you're wanting to check the quality of your faith, or if you wanted to start your own journey of faith, how'd you do that? I don't know that that's a particularly easy question to answer. Um <laughs> I mean, some of it is because it's really hard to overcome your upbringing. I mean, one of the things that skeptics will say is, well, you're only a Christian because your parents were a Christian. That's right. To which I might say, well, you're only a skeptic because your parents were a skeptic and they exempt themselves from that equation. But, you know, right. be that as it may, there is truth to the fact that we're a product of our upbringing. And I think the first thing that we have to do is acknowledge that we're a product of our upbringing. There's no way to get around it if you don't recognize the truth of it. Mm-hmm. And so that that's a starting point, is to realize I believe this in large part because I was taught this. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong. And that's, that's another mistake that's built into that skeptical accusation is because you were taught something, therefore it could have been taught some other way. Well, no, because, you know, we all were taught the mathematical multiplication tables, but it wasn't like they could have taught that however they wanted to. I mean, mm-hmm. math is reality, and that's why it's taught the way that it is. By analogy, that works here, too, because God is reality, and that's why we're taught the way we are. And so just because we're taught something doesn't mean that it's not true. We should at least be willing to investigate whether what we were taught is true. And again, the truth has nothing to fear. It starts with acknowledging the reality of how we have been conditioned and taught. Sometimes it happens because there is some crisis in our life that brings our world crashing down all around us, and it forces us to ask those questions anew for the first time. Right. Just making the choice and deciding to em- embark on this investigation, that's, that's a little bit harder to pin down for me. But, but I guess I would say, if nothing else, it, it starts with an acknowledgement of, of how influenced we are. See if you agree with this. I think there are a series of three-word questions that take you a lifetime to answer. Is God real? Is he good? How do you know? I think those are three-word questions that will take you the rest of your life to figure out the answers to. That doesn't mean you can't come to a reasonable answer pretty quickly. But unless and until you start grappling with those questions, I don't know that you can call your faith really your own. I think your parents can help you find some answers to that. But unless and until you start looking at the truth of those answers or not, 
then you're just going to basically inherit a belief system that goes without scrutiny. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think some of what you're, you're talking about there um, is that ground level worldview questions. Yeah. I mean, the number of of people who haven't even thought about worldview at all is kind of a terrifying thing. I mean, there, there's another podcast topic for you one day um, <laughs> is, is the issue of worldview, having a, a coherent system of looking at life and the world and everything that makes sense of all of it is kind of important. And I mean, we all have one to, to some degree or other, but a lot of, people's worldviews aren't well thought out and they have all sorts of built-in contradictions and they don't even realize it. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're right. Those are lifelong questions and you need to have some kind of answer to them that is your answer that is a well thought out answer. Um, those are, are three really important three word questions, but there are a lot of other really important questions that they kind of come from those and are tied into those. So yeah. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate you doing this, man. I end all of my podcasts with be good and do good. What's good? Well, I'm going to say this, and I'm not going to say it to be snarky. There's a reason I'm going to say it. There is no one good but God alone. And, of course, that's Jesus' answer to uh, someone who comes up to him and says, good teacher. I don't think Jesus was being snarky either when he said it, of course. But uh, the reason that I I bring it up is because I wanted to to end – on the idea that anything that is good is just like anything that is true. The reason that truth has nothing to fear is because all truth is God's truth. And if something is true, it aligns with him and his character, and that's why it is true. Uh And the same thing is true of goodness. There is no goodness apart from God, and anything that is good is a reflection of his goodness And more importantly, it's a reminder of his presence. Thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Happy to do it. I really relate to Nathan a lot. It's my experience. The smartest people know how to say things the simplest way. The ice example will stick with me a long time. And I've heard the blind men and elephant story several times. But he did an excellent job of showing the problem with it. Nathan, thank you for being so generous with what you do so well. As for the good thing I'm thinking about, I had a conversation with a guy, J.P. Flores, who talked about the importance of being grateful for small things, like salt and pepper or air. Gratitude is a very small thing itself, which ends up being a big deal. Thank you, J.P., for reminding me of that. Next time I plan to have another audio essay I've been thinking about for a long time. I'm excited to share those thoughts with you. If these episodes have helped you at all, please do me a favor and share them with your friends. So until next time, let's be good and do good.